WSL Radio, which is what we're calling this. WBS, for obvious reasons, whole backstage. L for the Roman numeral for 50, because we're coming into our 50th season as a community theater. How about that? Yeah, so I really appreciate you doing this because um, it has been... Like I was telling when I interviewed Grant, it's been something that we've been talking about and being excited about, um, kind of doing these interviews with with people who have a connection to the whole backstage and to Gunnersville and um, just kind of you know getting a feel for like what what you're into now, what your experience here was at the theater, and kind of how that informed what you're doing. So um, I'm glad I ran into you. And uh, yeah, right. when you're in town, yeah. And I'm really happy to be uh, sitting down with you. So, um, for sure, me as well. Thank you. It's good to see you. Yeah, absolutely, it's buddy. To, it was good to be back at the whole backstage for like a little bit. I was sad I missed the actual performance, uh, but to see the dress rehearsal was pretty yeah. special. Yeah. So, you did see a full run? I did. I saw their first, I think I saw maybe their second full run. Gotcha. Um, well, we for those for those listening, we had uh, at the whole backstage had guys and dolls for the past two weeks, and uh, Adam's sister was in the show, and he was in town and got to see the the second run, which was was really good by all accounts. It was great. Uh, I it saw the great. start of it and um, got to see the whole show. I think I saw uh, the first Saturday night, maybe. So, but it was, it was fantastic, man. Everybody did a great job. Um, really enjoyed it. If you missed it, I'm sorry. It was, you know, <laughs> I heard, I heard the costumes, like, I mean, that's a play that really comes to life with the costumes. Oh yeah. Well, right. Like it's kind of one of those that really relies on, you know, the zoot suits and the, the yeah, absolutely. Wardrobe. And you know, we have a team of well-qualified costumers, like volunteers here that just come and, and do, and, uh, <laughs> they did everybody looked amazing the suits were fantastic you know uh the hats and the uh, man everybody looked great and like the costumers um one thing like you were mentioning the, that that's play that comes alive with the costumes and stuff the uh the set that johnny put together the director um man there was a there was a subway entrance. There was a big street light that said subway across it. It had a big traffic light in the back corner of like full size street mounted yeah, traffic it was impressive. light. Um, it was impressive. Everything looked really good. So anyway, what are you I mean, what are you into? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, no, I mean that I mean, well, it's also cool for me to be back in that theater because, you know, I haven't I haven't been involved in a production in the new space. Um, you know, I grew oh, yeah. up going there a lot when I was younger. Um, in the old space. So I was kind of taking a tour just around the halls and, and kind of seeing the backstage, you know, and just the depth of the stage and how many curtain pulls there are and the, the wings of the stage are so impressive. So yes, we've got an yeah, extensive see, you know, fly system. That's really awesome. Yeah. And it's, it's just so incredible that, that Gunnersville has, you know, a, a community theater that is so, um, uh, well attended, but also just so sort of um, loved, you know what I mean? And you can tell it's, yeah. uh, it's cared for and, um, and not every community has that, you know, at all. I mean, really, especially for a, a you know, city so small to have such a vibrant community theater where people come from, you know, an hour, hour and a half away to see you know, probably further. But uh, anyway, so yeah. yeah, it's just a, it's, it's always cool to come back and 
well, and see how the theater's growing and thriving, you know, because it's been, like you said, it's been that way for 50 years. Yeah, well, and that's probably part of the reason is that we have been here so long and there have been a handful of people through over the years that have just been like instrumental and absolutely necessary to its um, success. And one thing that, you know, I'm proud to say is that I, we say that the whole backstage is um, North Alabama's longest continuously operating community, oldest continuously operating community theater. Um, and uh, with 50 consecutive years, uh, you know, I've been trying to do some research and find out if that's absolutely true. But uh, so far, that seems to be <laughs> yeah. seems to be a marker we can hold. Um, so you what what productions were you involved in in the before the remodel? Um, I mean, Holbeck stage specifically, I think I probably only acted in uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, which was, I don't know, probably around what, 19, it was like maybe 98 or something like that, yeah. like 96, 97, 98. Um, I played a, yeah, I think Jeff McLaughlin is just the proverbial, um, it, <laughs> It's a Wonderful Life, uh, you know, um, cast member because he's just in it all the time. Um, and so... Um, <laughs> Yeah, Jeff was Jeff played my dad, um, and uh, and I think he did it again with his son, maybe like ten years later. Uh, but yeah, so I was in that production um, specifically, and then you know I just I sort of grew up watching my sister do um, so many plays because she was in you know The Wizard of Oz with the Children's Theater, and I remember um, I think she was in something like that. She was in Alice in Wonderland. She was like she was just in so many plays that I grew up watching all the rehearsals. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, it's just talking about the whole backstage as a community space, you know, um, one of my most vivid memories of the whole backstage is, is doing Odyssey of the Mind, which oh, you know, some yeah. people may not know, but, you know, Odyssey of the Mind was, was a, essentially a skit program for, for elementary and middle school children that unfortunately went sort of defunct. There was a strange lawsuit that kind of changed the the organization of the structure in the Southeast and, and obviously of the mind went away, I think when I was in like seventh grade, but um, uh, I did it for a few years. My sister did it for, for a long time. And my mom was typically involved in like mm -hmm. directing Odyssey of the mind. So the whole backstage was always so gracious to uh, provide Odyssey of the mind with rehearsal spaces because it was run through the school programs, but it was sort of like a, um, you had to kind of find independent practice time. So, you know, we would paint backdrops and we would do rehearsals and build costumes and things like that for OM at the whole backstage. And so I feel like we always had a leg up because we just had this sort of hive mind of like yeah. Diane DeBose and like Dot Moore and yeah, you know, just like the wrestlers and like everybody that was always there. Like, you know, you could just, they were working on a production and we were kind of working on something on the side and then they would help us kind of get a leg up because we kind of came in with this legit, like, you know, skit the seven minute skit which like looking back was so silly but yeah that was definitely like one of my first experiences and like exposures to uh creating like a world and, and sort of acting in it so well that's yeah, great I mean, like, I, that's that's a very vivid memory of the whole backstage for sure i didn't know i was involved in om also and i didn't I, number one i missed the fact that it kind of just went away because i guess our group didn't do it past uh middle school and i would have been i guess in high school when um when that happened and uh, we, that's great that y'all used the whole backstage. I, we didn't, we didn't get to do that when I was involved in it. We did, um, 
we use classrooms in the schools, like the middle school or, or the elementary school or whatever, right. which I thought was really cool because you got to be in the school like after hours when right. you know nobody's right. there. <laughs> I, well, I, see. That's the, that was the spooky thing about being at the Holbeck stage. You know, I, was like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, you know, six years old, you know, being dragged to all these rehearsals and I would just be running around by myself. And uh, I never saw any ghosts, but I'm pretty sure there were a few ghost sightings <laughs> back by the vending machines. Well, um, there there are a few stories floating around, which, you know, would be cool to uh, explore at some point. <laughs> yeah, you should put on like a proton pack and do and yeah. an episode of, uh, <laughs> you know. Going around ghost hunting. I'm not going to say I don't already have one. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, my dad attended elementary school at the Rock School. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's funny because you go in that front room there that's kind of like the sort of event space now, and you can just really see how it's just still a classroom. It's got the little bookshelves mm-hmm. and everything. And then and then my mom, uh, Glenda Carboni, was in, at the time, Glenda Kelly, she was in the uh, very first production at the Holbeck stage. Oh, wow. She was She was a cast member of Our Town. Uh, which was like, if you look on the wall of like the list, it's the very first one. Yeah. Well, I, we were discussing that recently. I think that was Dot Moore who founded the whole backstage. That was her favorite play. And like, she always wanted to do it. And, uh, you know, it's very fitting that it was the first one then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so, and, and this, this will be a whole episode on its own where, um, we kind of go over the history of the whole backstage. And, uh, so going into our 50th year, it's been 50 years as the whole backstage, but five years prior to that, this group existed as the teen club, which uh-huh. Dot Moore started. Um, and so before we, we got into this building and were the whole backstage, it was five years of just the teen club who put together just skits and shows and stuff in, in town. And I've heard people uh, tell stories about that, putting on shows like in, in, in a back room of a, a building in town that like where they just had, you know, maybe a 10 by 10 space or something like that. Just like, I mean, that's, that's just for fun. I mean, when you have nothing but like the corner of a room and you invite some people to come see you do a show. <laughs> so funny. I mean, yeah, theater, theater is, it's, um, it's alive and well in, in Gunnersville. You know, it has been for, yeah, for a long time. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, the whole backstage obviously central in that, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, that's that's another reason I started this show was to, you know, make the things and the people that that put on and shows and do things in this building available to more people on more platforms. For sure. And so, um, kind of figuring it out as we go, <laughs> and it's it's been a lot of fun. But after so so you did a few shows <laughs> as as a as a young kid. Um, and I did, uh, Christmas in Oz. If that That's may have been was. one you were talking about. Yeah. Um, I think, I don't remember what year that was, but that was one of the, the first ones or the only ones I did. I, I did maybe one or two as a kid and then didn't really get back into it <laughs> until right. after I graduated from, uh, from college and moved back from, from Nashville. But for me, growing up in Gunnersville, being exposed to the theater at such a young age was so foundational. You know, I, I um, it's not the whole backstage, but it's, it's adjacent, um, you know, because of Johnny Brewer. But uh, my sister Andrea played the role of Annie when she was 10 years old. And so I went to, you know, a good two months of rehearsals with her when I was like seven years old. And so 
Um, and then I ended up being in that in Annie as well, just as a young kid. And, you know, Andrea was this like little kid from Gunnersville, but, you know, because she had done things the whole backstage, yeah. I think Johnny knew her. And so they knew she could pull it off. And it's pretty incredible looking back that a 10 year old could sing and remember all those lines. But yeah, that, you know, I look back and I think that was a very formative time for me because I spent a lot of time with the lighting booth people um, on that production because I was just at every rehearsal. And so between that and then kind of trying my hand at acting and realizing that that's not really where my uh, talents lie. Uh, <laughs> um, that's when I sort of, the hook got into me and then I was involved with, you know, high school theater from a, a lighting perspective. And so that's kind of what laid the foundation for me. So I, I always look back on my time at the whole backstage and, and with Johnny Brewer and, you know, there's just the sort of Northeast Alabama community in, in general as being very foundational to me developing a, a, a sort of intense love of like performance lighting and things like that. Hey everybody, I hate to pull you away from our interview with cinematographer Adam Carboni, but I wanted to let you know in case you stumbled across us by accident that you are listening to Hoback Stage Live on WBSL Radio recorded in Alabama's oldest continuously operating community theater. Check the show description for a link to connect to all of our social media. Really, click that link for our entire digital footprint. Follow us for upcoming events and announcements and to learn how you can be part of our mission to provide our community and surrounding areas with a positive outlet for the performing arts. Please make a point to subscribe or follow us so you are kept in the loop when a new episode drops. Just search Holback Stage Live wherever you get podcasts or visit holbackstage.com and find the WBS Live podcast page under the archives tab in the menu. Now, back to the show. So that was kind of where your your focus was, whether whether you were watching a rehearsal or um, maybe even in in a show or watching a show. That that's kind of your focus. Kind of went to the technical aspect. For sure. I mean, even when I was acting, you know, it was always the sort of behind the scenes magic. You know, like how is why is this sleight of hand? Why is this trickery working? You know, and kind of assessing that. There's a I, my favorite production is Phantom of the Opera. I've seen it. Uh, I, I actually went on a trip with a children's choir that went from Gunnersville to New York when I was like six or something. And so mm -hmm. I saw it then. And then I saw it when I was 12 and I saw it when I was 14. I saw it like five. I've seen, I think I've seen it five times on Broadway. Wow. Um, and yeah, it's kind of, and so <laughs> my, one of my favorite, mo anyway, so my favorite uh, production is Phantom of the Opera. Um, I've seen it multiple times and one of my favorite moments in that, which speaks to, I think, the, the just the pure magic of theater and the sleight of hand, is um, when they go down to the dungeon in Phantom of the Opera, right? The, the Phantom breaks into the masquerade ball and they exit, the two main uh, characters exit, I think, stage right. And right as they exit, the stage starts to roll up from the bottom and the stairwell and the dungeon come out of the floor. Well, those same two characters that run off from the masquerade ball immediately enter at the top of the stage. Wow. Right. Yeah. And then start going down the stairs. And they pull that off through body doubles during the masquerade ball. 
And so immediately, it just visually, you are transformed from something that is on ground level to 50 feet below ground level. Almost like like your view of looking at a a cutaway of a house and seeing people go from the second story to the first story or like... Exactly. It's it's like you're looking at a cross section and you're all of a sudden you're looking at, you know, the ground floor and then now you're looking at the basement and they're and so they they leave the ground floor but then they enter the top of the stage because they've now sunk below that is anyway that's it's very technical description but it's that type of like sleight of hand that that always attracted me to theater because uh, there is something uh that the audience has to sort of suspend their disbelief to go on the journey but i think when it's done well technically they buy it. And I think that's the magic of the theater. So for me, that was always um, what I was attracted to the most was like, how, how are we pulling this off? You know, how can we sort of um, enhance the audience's experience in the theater by doing, you know, whether it's lighting or sound or, um, you know, some sort of stage. Stagecraft. Yeah. Stagecraft. Exactly. Exactly. Have they done that trans, this may be a sidebar, but have they done that transition in that scene in every production that you watched like the same way everyone on broadway they've done it like that i you know i think i might have seen phantom like when it toured does phantom tour i don't know i I, i've seen it i I think i've actually seen it five times and i think they've done it every like every time they do it like that interesting yeah because like you know the the fences that they row the boats through the mist and all that stuff like the Mm -hmm. mist starts to come across the stage and the and the fences like rise up yeah and then that ultimately becomes like the bars and anyway so i think that um yeah, it's just like part of the set, what, which has been running forever. And, you know, I know a lot of people oh, talk uh, yeah. about Phantom. <laughs> well, th- that's what I heard when we went to New York. We were like, so, you know, what shows do we have to see? And somebody said, don't see Phantom. It's, you know, it's whatever. Everybody knows yeah. what it is. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but yeah, I exactly. love that show. Why would I not see it? Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that I think theater snobs uh, have a thing about uh, um and I can say theater snob because I yeah. consider myself like a, a bit of a film snob. So we're all the same. We're cut from the same cloth, right? It's like, you know, you can't enjoy the simple pleasures because you, you're supposed to like something that's a little more highbrow, right? Sure. I think I think Andrew Lloyd Webber just like, <clears throat> I, I, I think they have a lot of disdain for him because of his style or whatever. It's like a little brash, but um, anyway. I oh, well. Know. To tie all that conversation back into the whole backstage, you know, the whole backstage has always been a breeding ground for creativity in stagecraft and lighting and pushing the boundaries of, you know, how do we take this small stage and a community of actors, which the entire audience is going to know. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. It's like when you go to watch a show, you know that, Oh, this is my dentist and this is my, you know, state representative. And this is my, like someone that was in my elementary school classroom, you know, but um, (laughs) seeing them be transformed, I think makes it even all the more fun. So. Well, it's interesting. You say that, you you know, we, we, you talked about, audience members coming from maybe an hour or two away. We have uh, actors who drive that far too. I, we've, there's one that's guy what, I know that Andrew has been. Saying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the guy that was in the, just now in the show with her, he drives from uh, over an hour away and he's done a handful of shows in a row. I mean, it's like rehearsals and performances. And uh, I mean, he's, he started with us um, right before I, when I did Little Shop in October, that might have been his first show with us, and he's been doing wow. shows ever since. <laughs> uh, wow. He might have started right before that, but I mean, yeah, for a solid almost a year, he's been driving over here from over an hour away. But 
he's really good and he's super nice. He's very talented on stage and in the shop. So, I mean, we're always grateful for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and again, it's a testament. You know, there's just not a lot of theaters like the whole backstage. Uh, you yeah. Know? Yeah. So a lot of people will drive to, to be a part of it, you know? Well, uh, talking about stagecraft, one quick thing. One thing I saw that I thought was really, really cool was um, I saw Les Mis at the Fox in Atlanta, which is a cool theater. I, I love going there. Um, and they did a, this thing where uh, when um, Valjean is walking through the sewers, but they did it with projections on like mm-hmm. a blank stage. There was nothing on stage. And with their projections, they had him changing direction and looking like he was walking through like a brick tunnel. And I mean, that may not be as cool to some people, but I, when I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, that's just lights. What? (laughs) (laughs) How are they doing that? So uh, that was, I felt the same way when I watched Aladdin on Broadway because, you know, I mean, Aladdin, you know, it's Disney, you know, you're, you know what you're going to get, right? Right. It's basically just a reprisal of the animation. And, um, when they get on the carpet and it flies, I mean, there's like an entire NDA, very secretive Disney situation with that carpet. And like, I don't, I mean, I'm sure you can find it on the internet, but I'm pretty sure it's like a, a pretty well-kept secret of how they actually do it. And it's incredible. Well, it's probably actually magic. That's probably why they don't want to talk about it. It actually might be. I think that's where, <laughs> that's where the admission funds to going to Disney World uh, go. It's Listen, like just we to, figured out the secret. Don't tell anyone. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah exactly. We got, we got to be, we got to stay a step ahead. <laughs> so you're, you're of the punchline. Yeah. See, we tied that in. We tied that. We went full dun, circle. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we tied that in. I'm glad you're here. That's that's what we're here for. <laughs> full uh, circle. So you talked about your theater experience, your early theater experience, kind of informing the steps you took to enter, like uh, to study film and enter a career in film. As you've gone through your career, has it taken some side roads that maybe you didn't expect or didn't plan for? Sure. I mean, you know, the film industry at large is is sort of just one big side road because, you know, it's not something it's not something like, um, you know, you go to a pharmaceutical school and you sort of there's a roadmap, right? You say, like, I will, you know, work as a pharmacist at a pharmacy and the biggest question mark will be where that pharmacy is. Right. Like what community will I grow up in? Where will I, where will I raise my kids? Sure. Um, that kind of thing. You know, the film industry is it's tricky because, you know, you go to you go to a film school or you just move to a big city that has film production and you start you know, working on set. And um, and you, you kind of just go where the work leads you um, because it is such a collaborative medium. Um, so, you know, the question of, you know, did my career sort of take any side roads, you know, I think early on, um, I really wanted to be into movies and I really wanted to direct films and write films, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of what most people go to film school for, right? I'm going to be a writer and director. I'm going to make an independent film and then that will play at a prestigious film festival. And then, and then something will happen, right? No, you never, you go to a lot of screenwriting classes in college, but no one ever tells you how you're actually going to make money. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and so kind of like everything else. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So like basically after school moved to New York city and kind of just started grabbing 
you know, the, the sort of coattails of the industry, so to speak. And just like wherever the winds blew, I sort of would go there. And, and through that, I think I started to understand my talents. You know, I, I think when you have to write professionally and you have to be so disciplined and write, they, they always say writing is rewriting. And my friends who are writers are so good at it, but they are just constantly at a computer. They are constantly challenging them, you know, their material and rewriting it. And so I just, yeah. I learned that that wasn't, that wasn't my personality. Um, and I wasn't good at that. And so that sort of became very clear that I was probably not going to be like some savant writer director because it just wasn't what I was cut out for. And so, you know, through those things, you kind of start to find your place. And, um, my experience in lighting from theater and from, you know, and my experience in camera from, from kind of teaching myself filmmaking in high school until going to film school and being very hands-on and technical at, at, uh, at film school, those two things kind of cross paths. And so the, the most um, revelatory way forward for me was to become a cinematographer. And so that is, that is where I am right now um, is I am primarily a cinematographer. Um, and so the projects that I work on range uh, uh, it's, it's a very broad range of types of things that I work on, but my role is um, for the past, about the past decade has, has pretty consistently just been cinematographer. So, so that's been a very nice um, thing to sort of settle into knowing that that is like, that has become my stability. You know, it's, is it's that, still a very, is that kind of something more you, you get hired per, per job as opposed to driving your own projects or, or coming up with or working with people on your own? Yeah, you know, I, someone described recently that um, being a cinematographer is, is making images on someone else's terms. And, gotcha. uh, you know, you, and you kind of have to buy into that because that is, that is the position. Um, it's, it's not always exactly what you would do. It's not always exactly what you want. Um, but the sort of massaging and collaboration and arriving at something together is part of the process. And it has always been that way for film. And so what I do is, um, you know, I'm, I'm an integral piece of the puzzle, but you mm -hmm. know, the, the entire picture of the puzzle is made up by so many people. Um, sure. And so, you know, yeah, I am usually on sets. I am, you know, the director's right-hand person in terms of capturing and lighting the scenes, but you know, I work very closely with production designers and set designers and decorators and um, and writers and and uh, I guess actors. Cinematography like kind of brings you into the whole whole picture, so to speak, as far as like you're saying, working with different departments or different aspects of making bringing the project together. It does, it does, and that's what I love about it. Is um, you know, I, I do still direct from time to time. Um, it's something I still enjoy doing. Um, I feel uh, very fortunate because I work consistently as a cinematographer. So I get to meet and experience a lot of directors and see how they do things. That is one thing that I think is actually um, quite awesome about where I am right now is that I, I sort of get to uh, work alongside and, and see the process of other directors and, um, and not necessarily just uh, seeing how I would do things. Yeah. So, you know, it has kind of opened my, it's definitely opened my mind in terms of how there are different approaches and there are different backstories and stories that need to be told and, and things like that. So, so um, you, you did, uh, you have directed though. How, it, it, did you 
do more directing for like music videos or car commercials or, or your own projects or uh, what, how, how is that directing experience kind of, I know you said you kind of, you appreciated getting able to being able to do that. Sure. Um, but maybe like, you know, enjoy being behind the camera a little more. Um, what were those directorial experiences like for you? Yeah. So, you know, directing in film is, similar to directing in theater where um, everything runs through you. You know, you're not necessarily going to be doing every single thing. Um, rarely are you doing that because uh, it's, it's not possible, especially when the projects get so large and the time gets so crunched. But, you know, you are the arbiter of pretty much every decision that happens. Um, and, and, and sometimes, you know, that minutia, uh, you either sort of sink or swim within that, right? Because it's every single costume, it's every single uh, performance note, it's every single, you know, camera movement change, it's every, you know, it's it's dealing with the feedback from studio executives or ad agencies or, you know, so directing is, is um, <laughs> directing is, is, is like 90% being a politician and 10% being an artist, you know, and it's well, like, yeah. that doesn't mean that directors are not 100% artists, but you have to be good at the other thing or, or else it's very difficult to have a career in it. So, and you know, my, I'm being a little harsh with the percentages, but <laughs> it, it is something that's, that, that can be very draining on directors because, um, you know, it's a lot of people coming at you with a lot of questions. So what I try and do is I try to be there for directors, right? Like, because I know by the time I'm brought onto a project as a cinematographer, that the director has been on that project for sometimes a month, sometimes years. And so they are looking to me to kind of bring a new level of excitement and sort of carry the baton and say like, okay, we're on the same page now and I am going to take this burden off of your shoulder. You can trust me. And then I work alongside them to achieve what they're after, but um, Got you. but it kind of then falls on me to sort of carry that torch. Um, so when I direct, sometimes you have to, uh, uh, when I do the sort of singular role, it's much more compartmentalized. So when you direct, you have to sort of break open all these different, um, parts of your brain to, to focus on a lot of different things. So, um, one thing that I really enjoy is working with actors, but I don't get to do it that often in terms of, uh, like rehearsals and directing and things like that. Um, most of the projects that I work on where I'm directing actors will be sort of like short form commercial projects or short films. Um, I was just working on a short film this past week that's gonna be on Hulu. And I was working with two incredible actors um, who are professional uh, Hollywood actors. And, and, you know, just getting to kind of talk to, and I wasn't directing this, I was just filming it, but, um, but you know, I'm still very intimate with those those actors. You know, I'm I'm yeah. at one point I was in the shower filming the actor, and so I'm discussing where you know where his eyes should go to give me that emotion and this and that. And you know, so we I, I typically develop a, a, a tight bond with the actors in either role that uh that I'm performing on set, which is something I, I still have an affinity for, but it's not something I do like on the regular. Yeah, was that something that is more? Like you, um, and I'm, I'm, I'll be honest. I'm looking up the guy's name right now. Um, uh, the Formula One driver you did a commercial with, the guy that was on Dancing with the Stars. Oh, Dancing with the Stars. Wait, who is this? I forget the guy's name. Um, 
I'm, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. Well, see, I did a commercial with uh, an IndyCar driver named James Hinchcliffe. That's the guy. Yep, that's okay. the guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, oh I was my like, gosh. it was weird because I did. I also shot a project with Lewis Hamilton, but it was during COVID, so I didn't get to meet him. Oh, okay. So I, I assumed you were you were talking about James Hinchcliffe, but yes, yeah, I was wrong on the on the. Uh, he was on Dancing with the Stars. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Unless I'm wrong about that, but I, I, I'm not 85 sure that was him. And it was a great season. I think he went to the finale and he was hilarious. He was such a good dancer, great on camera. I mean, like he, he's so entertaining. It was a it was a fun season. <laughs> no shade. Dancing with the stars. I, is fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed it. It was uh that was a great season. I can I can imagine what being in a car with him was like. <laughs> There's actually a lot of stories from that set that I'll spare you. Um but James is James is a really, really nice person. Um yeah, I mean, so James Hinchcliffe, the Canadian IndyCar driver, um, I filmed a Honda commercial with him. That was a, a it was a commercial for their Performance Civic line, which, coming from an IndyCar driver, he actually said was a blast to drive. So yeah. I, I was sticking my nose up a bit at the at the fact that we were filming this IndyCar driver in a Civic, but he was like, "This thing's pretty cool." Man, he can drive. Uh, I rode in the back seat with him around the Mid Ohio Sports Track. Yeah. Um, and uh, he tossed me around the back seat quite a bit. I was holding the camera back there and he was, you know, and we were laughing. Um, but yeah, he, man, he was super nice. He flew in on a helicopter the morning of the shoot, landed in the field. We shook his hand and then we filmed for 10 hours straight and didn't stop driving. Uh, we filmed him from wow. a, a pursuit vehicle. We filmed him, you know, from a drone inside a car, another car. We built this sort of like makeshift museum and one of the, buildings and we filmed him walking through that for like 30 minutes just really fast now, do so, each of those have to be different shots like you're talking about the pursuit car and the drone and everything all does those all have to be independent yeah and that's why like filmmaking is so much you know planning and, and then you know just the filming is so uh you know that's why the film industry is so intense because it, it is so like a filming day is very expensive and so all the resources mm. in the prep phase go toward just making the most of that day and um in the case with celebrities um you know i've filmed a lot with celebrities and and their deals typically uh give the advertisers so many uh hours of their time per year so for instance they might say okay you have james for uh, 40 hours based on his contract. So divide okay. that however you want. You know, if you gotcha. guys want to film one thing with him for 40 hours, great. If you want to film four commercials that take 10 hours each, great. Like however you want to do it. So on that one in particular, like we'll fly in a week before and we'll, we'll kind of start prepping everything. And, uh, and, and then like different vendors will come in like the drone operators and the camera car operators and stuff like that. And so then by the time James gets there, you know, we've got the two matching cars ready. We have a stunt driver who's going to drive for just different shots and, and he's driving for different shots. And um, That was going to yeah, be one of my questions. How many cars did you go through? Or it, we, had you know. two, we had two cars. Uh, one was the hero color white and the other one they wrapped in vinyl to make it white uh, because <laughs> there was only like, there were only so many pre-production models of the car available and the stunt driver actually crashed the oh, no. uh he actually crashed i think he crashed the hero one so james is driving like the wrapped car i think in the last like few shots of of what we filmed um and, and it just shows how sort of it was a testament to what a professional james was because he drove that whole day 
mm-hmm. and and had zero drama uh, on the track. And uh, and he was pushing it. Like I asked him at one point, I said, "How you know how fast are we taking these turns?" And he was like, "Oh, we're going through this one at like 50. And 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 I was like, and then I thought, "Wow, yeah, this is a 90 degree turn." Yeah, they're not gradual turns. <laughs> and I said, "How fast do you normally go?" And he's like, "I'm usually going about three times as fast." Oh gosh. But in the interest of telling like one fun anecdote, I asked James. I said, "You know, what's the what's the craziest thing about driving IndyCar?" And he said to me. Uh, he thought about it for a second. He was like, well, let me think. And he said, it is telling yourself every single turn that the car is not going to break free from the asphalt. Yeah. Even as you have to condition your brain all the time to commit to these turns because everything in every ounce of your body is telling you when you turn this wheel, this car is going to spin. Yeah. But he said they are just engineered so perfectly that they're not. And so, you know, he said it's just getting over that hump because you have to do it 10 times a lap for 150 laps. And wow. Never stops, so. right, that's that's got to be a wild feeling, too, for to, to for your body to be feeling something and your brain telling you this is usually what happens when you get into this situation, but then exactly. it doesn't happen. You know, not just yeah. convincing yourself to commit and it's not going to happen, but then actually like your brain experiencing you know, everything was fine. We didn't have the negative outcome that I was a hundred percent sure we were going to have. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, he, he told me all about this, um, you know, in Indianapolis where a lot of the drivers live, they actually have a training facility where they do extensive brain, uh, cognitive training where they do like where they recognize lights and they oh, identify yeah. like, and, you know, and they test their neck strength and they do all these exercises. Um, it's fun. you know they're athletes. It's a, it's a different yeah, type. Of absolutely, athlete. yeah. But they are, yeah. And I'm glad I'm glad you shared that. That's that's why we're here. This is where people get stuff they don't get anywhere else. And stories about <laughs> Hinch driving. Did you get to drive the car at, at any point? Did you Did you take it out after he said, you know, this is this is pretty fun? <laughs> you know, after I saw the stunt driver crash into the wall and he was fine, I was like, that is not going to be something I'm going to. No, thank you. No, no, no. <laughs> not going to touch that thing. Oh man. That's funny. And he, you know, Hinge had just come off a really devastating injury. Um, oh, really? Like about a year before. So it was it was kind of touch and go whether he was actually going to drive for the commercial. And he was super nice and totally agreed to everything we asked him to do. So, um, but I think there were some people that were quite nervous about it because he was pretty fresh back on the on the tour. Yeah. Um, from a pretty bad injury that he had. So. Hello, everyone. Sorry to interrupt again, but I wanted to take a moment to remind you about the whole backstage's upcoming production of the Pulitzer Prize-winning classic of modern American literature, To Kill a Mockingbird, from the novel by Alabama native Harper Lee. Directed by Wesley H. Rorick's performances will open September 30th and run through October 9th, 2022. You will be able to experience the stage talents of the entire Trammell family, Eliza, Allie, and Wes, Jeff McLaughlin, Dax Stapler, Sharon Glenn, Lori Boatfield, Julie Oliver, Rich Ressler, Josh Hood, Thomas Breland, Tony Wildfong, Cole Nichols, and I could go on and on, but you need to check out the entire cast list on our website or click our socials link in the show description. Make plans now to attend this production as we kick off our 49th consecutive season as your community theater. Tickets are available through holbackstage.com. And now back to the show that sounds like an incredible experience and that's just one out of you know i'm sure many many over your career that's like 
you know, I get to do this. I've been you know? very fortunate to, to meet a lot of, well, just awesome people in general, for sure. Right. I mean, just as much as I sort of work with new crews every week and I travel a lot, but especially famous people, you know, they get a bad rap, but a lot of them are quite nice. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've had some negative experiences, uh, Typically, it's just pressure and and them not wanting to be there. Um, I can imagine for whatever yeah. reason, but uh, but so often, you know, ninety percent of the time, these these sort of celebrities that I work with are are, are quite nice. And it's, it, I remember one of the first shoots I did in New York with a celebrity was with Eli Manning, and you know, it's like you just kind of have to judge when it's okay to talk about. You have to judge when it's okay to approach these types of athletes yeah. uh, or celebrities, right? And and oftentimes I will just shake a hand, you know, say, here's your mark. I need you to look at the camera like this. I'm going to come around you like this and I'm going to catch your eye. And you kind of learn who's technical and who's not and who wants to be talked to and talked through and this kind of stuff. But um, Eli was one of those that was just really nice. And I just remember, you know, like we're just wanting to talk to him about the sort of Auburn Ole Miss situation. <laughs> and like, I just, I just felt like being in New York city, I had to tell him I was from an SEC place yeah. just so that I could have some connection because we're neighbors. Yeah. Pro tip. When you move to New York city, nobody cares about college football and it's like the most crushing <sighs> thing for someone from Alabama. And so when you meet someone who knows anything about college football, you just, that's all you want to talk about. Right. Cause you're kind of just like starved for the conversation. So that's, <laughs> I was basically that nerd with Eli Manning, but he totally nerded out with me and we, we got to talk for like five minutes. So it was cool. That's funny. I, yeah. I heard recently uh, an interview with Brad Paisley where he was talking about Peyton Manning and he was saying, you know, how, how just funny he is. And I can imagine all those brothers are that way, but like uh, Brad uh, Paisley told one story about, you know, he was walking through his field at his house and got a FaceTime call from Peyton uh, and it was, uh, it might not, may not have been FaceTime. It may have been Zoom or, or he texted him and said, Hey, get on the Zoom right now. <laughs> and so Brad Paisley jumped in there and, and he said, and Peyton was like, Hey, everybody, Brad's here. So they were just like roulette texting their friends, asking them to join this Zoom meeting. And they were just hanging out. <laughs> of course. Of yeah. Course. yeah. They're so fun. And I mean, look, you know. It's like when you're making that kind of money, like you should, you should be fun. That's, that's my opinion. But, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you were talking about, <laughs> you just know when it's okay to approach somebody. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's professional, right? It's just, yeah. it just is like you just learn. And that's one thing that, that I have gotten better at is just kind of reading intense situations, uh, you know, high pressure, uh, uh, celebrities, you know, you, it's, you do have to lock in and sometimes it is just professional and you don't get to have that like, you know, one one of the things that I'm so fortunate to to have is is to be in a creative field where you know typically it's okay to have fun at work and mm -hmm. you know come up with ideas and, and make good memories and stuff. But sometimes, you know, it's uh, sometimes you just have to put that aside and know yeah. that you know the assignment's going to just be kind of intense because sometimes filmmaking can be like that. And and honestly, it's like when safety's involved. Um, like on the Hinchcliffe shoot and oh yeah, uh, some other like things where I'm doing big stunts and stuff. It's like everybody comes to work that day and, and you know like this is gonna be. We gotta we gotta pay attention. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like we no one. It's not worth no film, no theater piece, no anything is worth anyone getting hurt. Right. So it's like that's so, kind of the mantra we have to remind ourselves of. Yeah. 
So, so, so you mentioned just then. I, I know you, you were riding in the back seat when uh, when he was driving that that car around the track for that commercial. But you also said, and, and you probably meant that you were filming. But you said, if I'm doing stunts or something that day. <laughs> so, do you ever end up in like a precarious? Do they have to hang you somewhere to get a shot, or like you know? Wh- always, yeah. I mean, I'm always in some sort of strange position rarely is it dangerous but it's often uh, a very high place or mm-hmm. i've almost been stepped on by horses um yeah. holding a camera i've uh almost been, like fallen out of a boat holding a camera like i've had to harness into like the side of rock walls i've, I've hung off of kind of every vehicle you can hang off of like <laughs> i sit on uh, four wheelers and i sit on uh bicycles i rode a moped you know ha- like sitting backwards on a moped filming back you know it's just you like you gotta trust the driver in those situations i'm sure yeah and and you know it's maybe as i'm getting older i'm gonna stop doing that stuff as much because you start you the adrenaline wears off and you think wow that was not very smart because <laughs> if i break my wrist then i can't go on the next project so maybe i should cool it with the you know so but the end result honestly, looks great <laughs> It, typically that's kind of the thing, right? It's like the camera person has to kind of go that extra mile to get the shot, but you know, yeah. it, it does have to be done in a way that's, you know, honestly, like the more professional the sets become and the more uh, I learn to prep and ask questions before, the less you'll find yourself in a situation where, you know, it's dangerous. Yeah. Cause we can, I mean, I mean, you look at Top Gun, look at, you know, Mission Impossible. Look at, I mean, look at these huge stunts that they're pulling off and, and, and you, but you have to plan for it, right? Like you can't just, of course you can sit backwards on a moped and film, but you should be properly harnessed in and, sure. you know, maybe a moped's not the best thing to use. Maybe production could rent another thing that has better suspension. <laughs> you know, so yes, to answer your question, I'm, I'm not a stunt person, but I do have to film the stunt people, which typically right. means like getting as close to them as we can with the camera to make it feel you know, you got to be in the same situation they're in. Exactly. You got to be in the space with them. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, that's interesting. You talk about, um, things like Top Gun and, and one thing I heard about that movie recently was that there was no green screen or special mm-hmm. effects used for any, in, in the new movie, uh, Maverick, there's no green screen for those shots. So I can only imagine, you know, it, they, they were actually in, in jets flying around you know i mean yeah so it's pretty incredible yeah i mean they um i know for that project they used sony venice cameras that have a detachable lens mount so it basically becomes the size of like a small sort of dslr camera that you might use like for wedding photography or something so that is a very large capable cinema camera that um has a fiber optic sort of sort of a fiber optic cable that can connect the lens block so I think at times they had six of those cameras sandwiched in the cockpit on every flight. Wow. To get so, the most out of the flights. Cause the flights were pretty expensive. Uh, yeah. I can't imagine. So, so yeah. that, that setup would be like, you have the actual camera body. I don't know what you, what you technically call it, but like right. you have it tucked away somewhere, but then you can mount the lens where you, right. you can get the shot without having that extra, I guess, taking up space. Yeah. So extra hardware. Um, yeah. It takes a lot of computing power, uh, and cooling power and things like that to run such a robust, capable cinema camera. And so um, these cameras are, you know, sometimes you know, 50, 60 pounds, they, they're about 24 inches long. And so to get that into a cockpit uh, can cause, you know, 
just isn't physically possible. There's so, not much space to start with. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So these cameras kind of made that possible. And I use these cameras a lot on projects where like we're putting cameras in a car or sometimes I use them handheld. So I'll actually have someone else wear the, the 30 pound body on their back mm -hmm. and we'll put like the transmitters and the batteries and monitors and things like that just on someone's physical backpack, like a hiking backpack. And then I'm just tethered to them with like a 20 foot uh, wrapped cable. And then I'm basically just holding something that's like, you know, 10, uh, like 10 to 15 pounds as opposed to like 55 yeah. or something. That's awesome. Which just opens up a lot of different ways of filming. So, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it gives you much more uh, mobility or agility trying to get certain angles or whatever. That's, I, I didn't know that existed. I mean, that's, so you're actually, the cable actually runs from, I guess, the lens that you're holding and then connects to the big, big pack that somebody else can handle. Exactly. Yeah. So they separate, they basically just separate the imaging device from the recording device. Yeah. Wow. Um, so you just have a sensor block basically that's attached to a lens, uh, which, you know, again, like I can talk for days about <laughs> technical stuff because it's, it's just part of my job is like, you know, you just, there's so many sure. new things that the past decade has just been a barrage of technology, like technological advancements. Um, I mean, obviously with the way that we're filming certain scenes now inside of volume spaces, like they do on the Mandalorian project or the way that we're, you know, using, you know, smaller cameras for certain things or uh, lights have become a whole industry in, in, in and of themselves. I mean, for 40, 50 years, you know, if you walk into the whole backstage and you see the lights, you know, they have the state of the art control equipment, but by and large, the fixtures and the units are very similar to what they have been. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, theater lighting effects can get nuts. Like you described on Les Mis at the Fox theater, but by and large, you know, it's their spotlights, their park hands, there's some iteration of that. And that's the way the film industry was, you know, since arc lights went out like in the fifties and everything kind of became, these de facto tried and true like film lights um, that all kind of got shaken up right around the time that I kind of got into the industry. Um, and so now it has just been every year there's new led lights coming out that are lighter, brighter, draw less power. And so for someone like me, it's really opened up a lot of opportunities because um, you know, we can use these battery powered sources to put lights in places that we, that would take a full size crew to put in other places. So, yeah. you know, when you're with a bigger crew, you're using less power, it's less heat for the actors, um, sets remain cooler. Um, so LED lighting has just really caused such a huge advance in my industry, but also in the theater industry too. And you're, and you're able to be so much more creative. Like, you know, thinking back to when I was doing lighting design at GHS, um, Gunnersville High School Theater, like, you know, if we wanted to change the color of it, it was a gel and you had to mm -hmm. climb up on the lift or the ladder and change it out. And, you know, if, depending on what we ordered from Barbizon, uh, you know, lighting company, that's what we had. And so, you know, you're kind of going through the gel roll and saying, you know, we have these 10 colors, which in a way the restraint is nice, but now you, with a flick <laughs> of a switch, you can just change it to be anything. So, yeah, you know, I didn't think about that, but yeah, you talk about, you, ha you can have one light Possibly. I mean, I, I do at the house. I have the capability. I've got one light bulb that I can make it warmer or cooler or brighter or dimmer or, you know, and it, exactly. it uses very little power and no heat. I mean, so that's, yeah, the translation into your industry where, you know, every bit of weight counts, um, yeah. the heat, yeah. 
the heat counts. I mean, if you're in a small space, yeah, that's a big, opens up a lot of doors, I can imagine. For sure, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was just filming at the San Diego airport and we weren't allowed to bring gas generators through <laughs> security onto the runway, right, for obvious reasons. I can't imagine and, why. <laughs> <laughs> but they let us bring batteries onto yeah. the tarmac. And so they now have, there's not too many available, but they're becoming more prevalent and basically just battery generators. Um, they're just a really heavy push cart yeah. full of huge batteries. Basically, it's like a Tesla battery on a cart. And so you just can wheel it up a mountain. You can wheel it onto a runway. You can put it in a boat. Um, wow. And there's, you know, there's no fumes. Uh, there's no sure. um, needing to take a gas can and refill it. So things like that have just come out in the past two years, which are really changing the way that we can think about things from a lighting perspective, because the possibility to get those units in certain places um, in remote places has become possible because of, you know, battery technology, which is cool. Yeah. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's another thing. I'm glad you're here. I didn't think about that. Wouldn't have probably wouldn't have ever if I didn't, you know, but you, somebody who needs, needs to, get power in some weird places sometimes. Um, it's a huge yeah. advancement. You know, the film industry basically looks at an issue, they solve it with ingenuity, and then they just mark it up about 3,000% and charge you a lot of money for it. <laughs> hey, we had this That's, idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, we fixed this thing, but it's going to cost you. <laughs> so so what, what has been maybe your favorite project that you've worked on or, or most challenging, whichever one comes to mind. Um, I saw you write that question down and I was like, I, I, I can never answer this because I can only assume it's like if you ask Johnny Brewer what his favorite play he's ever done. It's just, yeah. you carry memories from each project that you do. Um, sometimes the project is worth it because of who you worked with. Sometimes the project's worth it because of how it came out. Um, sometimes the project's not worth it at all. <laughs> uh, sometimes the project just become something different because of challenges that you weren't expecting, right? Because we're filming in the elements, we're filming you know, with so many logistics, with so many personalities, egos, stuff like that. So we have high, we have high hopes for everything that we go into and sometimes it doesn't pan out. And then sometimes you're just so pleasantly surprised. Yeah. A lot of the projects I work on are kind of like 10 days in length. Sometimes they're shorter, sometimes they're much longer. Um, I just did a feature film last summer that was uh, three weeks filming and a week of prep. And then we've done two more weeks since then. So, you know, all in all, that's going to be about two months of like straight time commitment on that project. Um, you know, the projects are so different that I work on that it's hard to like kind of compare them. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I've, I've traveled a lot for work, which is kind of uh, my favorite part about what I've been able to do is just to go to a lot of different places in the world. And, um, and, uh, and, and not only just, travel as a tourist but actually to work with people from different cultures mm -hmm. that has has really been a blessing because it's really eye-opening when you have to spend 14 hours on a movie set with someone who might not speak your language or was raised completely differently than you or has a different you know viewpoint of the world or religion or, or whatever it might be right these differences that a lot of times when you just visit a place you're not necessarily exposed to um but when you're when you're trying to achieve something together and you're working for something, you know the sort of surface level interaction kind of goes away, and you're and you're actually having to view each other as as professionals and and as humans, and and it, it's typically that um, relationship that really 
it, it really is binding. I mean, it's 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 a it's a very sort of intense relationship that that you can develop with people around the world when you're when you're working with them like this. And so that is is my favorite thing. You know, I don't know if I have a favorite project, but that's that's honestly like the favorite my favorite thing about what I get to do is is uh is you know go and spend two weeks to a month in, in a country that I've never been to and, and kind of get to meet those those kind of people and then you leave with friends that you know you never would have thought Absolutely. you would know. You yeah. Know? We um, um, I know we experience that here on a small scale uh, at the whole backstage. Every time a new cast comes together to put on a show, you leave with renewed friendships, new friendships, and you know by the end of it, every everyone feels like it's a family environment. You know, it's even if you didn't know that person when you started, you know, you're family now. So <laughs> for sure. And yeah, and I these mean, are, these are short-term projects too, I guess maybe, uh, I guess three months start to finish from auditions to the show maybe. Um, so, you know, kind of, I, I guess kind of a similar parallel there just with a short, yeah. short-term project group comes together. We have to pull this off and yeah. And it's, and it's, um, and that's kind of why I mentioned earlier that directing is a lot of, uh, is a lot like being, you know, it's just a lot of politics. It's a lot of, you know, because it is, you're managing personalities, right? You you know, not every person you cast is going to be, uh, the person that stays late for rehearsal. They're not going to be the person that shows up on time. They may not be the person that wants your notes or your feedback or, you know, they may turn it on the night before the show. Uh, and, you're nervous the entire time that you've cast the wrong person that, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden there they are and there's that spark and there's that, you know, you see that reason why you cast them. And so, you know, when I'm directing a, a film project, you're just constantly questioning yourself up until the time that you get the footage. <laughs> and I've learned to not even be happy then. Like I, I, I have very tempered expectations, you know, yeah. it is exciting. It's exciting to pull off a complicated shot when we have cranes and we have equipment and, actors and we're doing a dance number or something you know it's really exciting to get it and i, I do love it but i really try to until i see the footage and it's in focus <laughs> and it's exposed and it looks decent you know that's when i'm like okay good like the I camera's can, not reflecting in his glasses okay thank god right but, yeah. <laughs> but you know somebody's gonna you know some somebody watching it 10 15 years down the road is gonna say hey there's a reflection in that doorknob right there. Where, yeah. Well, and, and that all that from? stuff has been has really been <laughs> exacerbated by by YouTube and, and yeah. the sort of like gotcha culture of like you know, oh this was this was different in the shot than that shot. So now we're constantly like very uh, cognizant of like continuity. Oh and sure, like that from shot to shot because you know people love to kind of pick that stuff apart uh, in the YouTube in the YouTube comments. You know, uh, yeah. Does it matter? Like if a project. Um, just to, in your view, if you, if you worked on something and then maybe it doesn't it doesn't go all the way through, it doesn't reach fruition, like it's not being seen. But we had you know it was a project at the time, but then they killed it. Like sure, sure. to you, is it fulfilling that you com- like you accomplished it regardless of whether people see it? Yeah, you know that is a huge. It's a great question because it, it, it and you really hit on something that like I do struggle with, which is, you know, you get your hopes up when you get chosen for a project, mm-hmm. right? Because, um, you know, I'm not just like floating around picking and choosing what I want to work on. Like, every time I uh, get to do a project, it's because I, I put a reel together that was assembled and pitched. And then I typically have to do interviews with directors or producers and they, you know, then it's sometimes another round and, and 
you know, it, and sometimes it's the silliest things that mean I don't get the job. Um, and sometimes it's the silly things that get me the job, you know, every project is sort of in question from the beginning. So I have learned to temper my expectations of the project because you can, you never know. Like I've learned to try and take a lot more fulfillment from the process yeah. and just try to like be present in the, in the sort of creating of the thing, which is a lot of times very difficult to do because my job is very sort of high stress on set because I, I like am the head of a department and a lot of things flow through me that, that I have to constantly kind of be turned on about. And so sometimes I don't get to like really switch off and like appreciate the moment that I'm in until it's over. So, you know, I've really been trying to kind of assess like each morning at breakfast, like make sure I'm talking to people on set, like make sure I'm like actually stepping away for lunch, um, you know, because it's very difficult. It's very easy to get sucked into that, like uh, just production vortex where you just never yeah. stop and then you look up and it's over. And, and then the only value you kind of are walking away with is, is like the finished product. And I, I've learned that the finished product is very, uh, you can never count on it. <laughs> you really can't. I've had some massive budget projects be killed, um, which were just heartbreaking because they were really going to be something that I felt like was going to push me to the next level of oh yeah whatever it might be. And um, yeah, I mean, I shot this, I, I was out in Vancouver for a month working on this uh, short film that was sponsored by Comcast and they were going to show it like their CFO had contracted it. It was like a, it was over a million dollar budget. We were, we had all the toys. I mean, it was one of the, it was the biggest like narrative project I had worked on. I was so excited. We, it was all this planning and we shot it. It looked great. They did all these VFX that it was, I mean, it was like, wow, this thing's really special. And then that guy left. Oh, Comcast. No. And so it was something as petty as, Oh, the guy that contracted this film, actually just left so we're canning it so we we weren't allowed to show it we weren't allowed to exhibit it anywhere it's it's no one oh, will ever man. see it um, i was about to say do you get to use stuff like that for your reel still or is it just gone secretly i do send it to some people <laughs> and i'm like hey here's this thing like check it out you know i do have the final product um but it's you know i can't like shout from the rooftops like hey look at this thing and, and oftentimes like if a director or the production company doesn't really like put the project out for uh, promotion or, or, you know, if the film doesn't really get promoted, then I, me promoting it doesn't really do much either. You know, I don't, sure. I don't really have like a legion of uh, social media followers that are <laughs> waiting for me to drop my next, my next thing. So, well, you can I, just... I am at the, the mercy of, of the sort of PR of, of whatever I shoot. So, yeah, well, I'll tell you the listenership of this show will, will, you know, get you places. <laughs> this is good. Exactly. This is going to be far travel. This is going to travel far and wide. Yes. Uh, please subscribe, like, and follow. Too, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I've been happy with what, with our response so far. I think, you know, more content like we're doing the, the, the interviews like you and, and all the stuff we've got planned, I think is going to be really, really fun to, to listen to, to, to watch if the video works, you know? <laughs> but, yeah. And I mean, like, honestly, what I've learned is, you know, because a lot of the, my wife Tansy and I, we've made a few short documentaries. Yeah. And yeah, I wanted to talk about that. that. You know, those have been something that that we invested our own time and money and 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 uh, uh, creativity into. And and unfortunately, we've both been really busy the past like five years. We haven't done one in a while. But um, but the few that we did, um, you know, they were so rewarding because even though it wasn't a huge viewership, right? Like they're not going to make like 
these huge waves of, of this or that, you know, but just people hitting us up and saying like, Hey, we saw this and it meant something to us. You know, right. it just that one person, we made a, a short film about uh, this drive-in theater that was owned by this, well, still is owned by this couple that's owned the theater for over 20 years. And the summer that we filmed them, they were transitioning from 35 millimeter film reels to digital projection. And it very much felt like a sterilization of something that had a lot of heart and a lot of character. Oh. And so um, I had the idea to, to film a drive-in theater because it was something that I was nostalgic about and wanted to capture before they were all gone. So we got really fortunate that we found this, this place called the Highway Drive-In. It's about three hours north of New York City. So we spent a whole summer just driving up there every weekend and filming with this couple and getting to know them. And um, you know, we got a lot of responses from people in Europe who said, oh my God, like I enjoyed your film so much because I've never been to America and we don't have drive-in theaters here, but like I now I really want to go and I'm going to try to come to America and like go to this drive-in. You know, so it's it's not so much like how many people see the thing that we work on. It's just, you know, knowing that you kind of made something creative that touched somebody or, or you know, gave them an emotion was, is, uh, right. you know, it makes it worth it. How many of your own short projects have you done? Are, are they like documentary style or narrative or? Yeah. And that's when I direct, I typically, um, I typically get hired to direct things that are, that have a documentary slant. Um, my trajectory has sort of been in the like commercial adjacent world. And then my sort of personal projects have been very much in the documentary world. So, gotcha. um, like I just got back from filming a feature documentary for another director in, in the Middle East. And so like a lot of, I, I, do, I do quite a bit of documentary work as well as my, my commercial and film work. Um, so a lot of my like personal projects uh, are in the documentary world because they're just easier to kind of self-produce. Yeah, um, I can it's, imagine. It's a lot easier yeah. to kind of like find a subject and, and, and I can bring myself and my camera and my wife can bring, you know, the sort of question asking and, and she she also went to film school that's where we met so she's quite um adept at doing those kind of tasks as well so she directs and i film and, and we kind of direct it together in the in the end when we edit but um you know the two of us can like approach a documentary subject and we can make something that we have a vision for but when it comes to narrative i i always lament how expensive film is um you know if you have a film idea it's a lot more expensive to pull it off than it is if you're a painter or a writer, you know, cause you can invest your own time to finish those things. Whereas, you know, yeah. a narrative film project requires actors, which requires money, which requires food, which requires costumes and makeup. And, <laughs> sure. and by the time you start to multiply these things, even a simple idea has now become quite costly. So when we do our own personal projects, we are typically doing something that's a little more focused, a little smaller and easier to pull off because you know, we're just, we're not necessarily like funding a big, a big thing. Sure. Well, where can people find your projects that you've done? Like your you own know, personal ones. My website is kind of the best place to look for anything that I'm working on. Um, I'm terrible at, so Instagram is quite a calling card for people in my profession and I'm terrible mm. at updating it. Um, I am constantly torn between the, I want to post pictures of my nieces and I should be posting pictures of my work. So <laughs> I just don't post anything. And so that's, uh, my agents always like kind of on me about like self-promotion and I'm just so bad at it. But, um, so my website is kind of the thing that, that acts as like a calling card to me. So when directors are looking at me, they'll check out my website and, and I kind of have sure. things organized there. And 
you know, it's, I think back 10 years ago when I'd first gotten to New York and I thought, oh my gosh, if I could just have enough to make a website, like then I'll, then I'll have made it. And now like my problem is that I, I actually have so much that we're now trying to curate it so that it right. feels like a singular kind of voice, which is really hard because you kind of have to kill your darlings in a way. Cause you know, I kind of want to keep everything I've worked on available for people to see, but then it kind of just becomes a little messy. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, so I it's, try and keep that curated, but it's just, you know, you, <laughs> it's uh, that, that in itself is like a full-time job. But. And I, uh, well, I, I was going somewhere else and this happens every episode. So anytime like you, I'm listening to you speak and it's, and then a question pops up, but I don't want to interrupt you. I want to hear what you have to say. And then it just goes, whoosh, it's gone. Right <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I'm you sure it would like have, a, you need to get like a little green light that you just raised. That yeah. And I'll stop talking. About it. <laughs> <laughs> that still wouldn't guarantee that I would remember the question. <laughs> Hey guys, before we wrap up, I have to say that we cannot do what we do without the support of local businesses and generous individuals. Contact the show at holbackstagelive at gmail.com for sponsorship opportunities. To help support the show as an individual, follow our socials link in the show description for access to PayPal, Venmo, and Cash App. Just add the word podcast as a comment. We are currently operating out of a temporary studio space and your generous support will help us achieve a professional, permanent space from which to generate consistently engaging content. Thank you for your interest in this project and now the conclusion of my conversation with Adam. Okay, so whether it's your personal project or you are filming for another director um, and regardless of the style of the project, it is do you see the root of what you're doing as like basically storytelling? I mean, like you want to get, you want to get a thought across a narrative across or, um, an idea or bring somebody into an experience. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because in our industry, like with the advent of, of, cameras and smaller production companies becoming much more accessible, right? Like as we kind of came into, like as my generation came into the workforce, it was a lot easier to kind of get a camera, film things. And so this word of like storyteller kept coming up in like a lot of companies and they'd be like, oh, we tell stories and we do this and that. And and so it, I, I just remember there was like quite a backlash of like saying like, oh, I'm a storyteller because like... <laughs> Everybody people would say like, wanted to be well, one. people would be like, well, this is a commercial. Like, what's really the story? You know yeah. what I mean? It's like they're walking in the door, they're experiencing the product, and then they walk out, right? Um, so, you know, it, I will say this. Like, it is so much more rewarding when there is a rich story, when there is a rich character background. Like, you know, I think theater is a great example of something where the text typically lives on, uh, but it's interpreted differently by every theater that touches it. You know, there's a reason that, like there's a reason that, um, I mean, Shakespeare has existed so long, but there's a reason that, you know, any any long running production, uh, uh, you know, is sustainable. It's because there's something in that text that is rich and can be mined. And so, you know, in that way, when I come on to something that has like a rich sort of context or, or, or backstory. And I really connect with a director who's trying to do it like that. Those are the most exciting projects. Um, 
when I'm working on something that is maybe more surface level, right, where it's it's more bells and whistles or it's just about the visuals, um, you know, you're not necessarily communicating a, a character arc or a story always, but I'm always using things that are storytelling techniques. Um, right. You know, it's kind of like stagecraft, right? It's like, it's not always in the support of, like a story beat, but it's always doing something to further the world around the story so that it can unfold. And that's kind of how I view, you know, because filmmaking is something that's so deeply rooted in convention that we don't even think about when we watch a show. Um, you know, just something that I'm constantly dealing with is eye lines, right? Like, where am I looking off camera? Like in this interview right now, if I start staring at the corner of my laptop, <laughs> you're going to eventually start to feel like I'm not looking at you and like I'm reading some kind of notification. And it's the same with cameras, you know, it's, it's the same of if, if they look slightly here, slightly there, like I'm always throwing tennis balls all over the set, trying to find places for people <laughs> to look. It's like, you know, and, and so uh, that is, is, is just a small example of how like that is a storytelling convention that we have, that we subconsciously know, right? When an actor is looking this way and then we cut to the other actor looking this way, we just accept that those two people are looking at each other. Right. Although in reality, that person's usually looking at me because I'm behind the camera. So, True. you know, it like sometimes I will literally put tape on my forehead and I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> all right, look at my forehead when I'm filming you because that is where, you know, so. It's where the other person's going to be standing. <laughs> exactly. So you kind of have to learn how to, uh, we always talk about this, but it's like you kind of have to learn the conventions so you can break them. Right. right it's like, yeah. And, and that's kind of the foundation. And, and I feel like, um, you know, to assume that, that at, 32 years old, I've already learned all the conventions is, is silly, you know, and so I still have so much more to learn. And, and, um, you know, and when I do learn new things, I try and take those on to the next project. And so, you know, you are using storytelling conventions, even if the story is not always, not always there, you know, um, I, I think a lot of the people who are making the things that I work on, we all fancy ourselves like lovers of story and character and, and yeah. you know, and that kind of stuff, but it's just not always inherently you know, in the thread of what we're kind of tasked with making. Sure. Well, in the commercial world, what made me think about that was that, um, you know, there, there's a school of thought around storytelling in advertising about, you know, like your company, create a story around your company or, or your product that your customer can uh, interact with, but also cast them as the hero in that story. So they feel... Sure you know, rewarded or that they participated or whatever. So I didn't know how deep that went in, in, in so far as just like creating products to bring people into the, the company's world or like, you know, or is it just like, we, we need to get this product uh, on film and get it out so we can sell some stuff. <laughs> you know, like, Yeah. Well, and, and that's kind of where like the role of the ad agency comes in, right? Like that's a little bit like, John Hamm and Mad Men. And so, you know, it's like that world is not necessarily a world that I'm like inherently interested in because it's so driven by like, like I work in commercials. I do a lot of commercials. I think they're an incredible way to learn and I get access to a lot of great equipment and I meet incredible people. Um, but at the root of it, like the sort of minutia of target demographics and things like that, no, are, um, they're just, it's again, it's just like, not, that's not my career path because right. it's something that is, um, it's an entirely different skill. And, and honestly, it's more of, uh, 
market research meets targeted it's targeted storytelling for sure um but a lot of it is just a world that i'm not super into like yeah the sort of like casting and the reasons that people get casted and stuff like that you know it's like (laughs) It's a whole, it's a whole, there's a whole underbelly to this, you know what I mean? But so you though, went after film school, where did you go to film school? So I went to film school at Florida State University. That's right. That's right. I remember that Florida State. So after Florida State, you did move to New York and, and start your career there, or I guess add on to what a career you probably started in school. So in the film industry or, or I guess the entertainment industry, um, as far as your experience goes with technology that we have now, it, is it possible for someone, um, to get involved in that, in that industry from anywhere or are there just more, you know, in your face opportunities in cities like a New York or an LA or whatever? Um, kind of what, what, what are your feelings on people being involved or getting involved? I know like entry level into the film industry from anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world for that matter. Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. Like people always ask me, you know, do you, do you think I, that I should go to film school? Do you think I should just start working on set? And, um, you know, as someone who had a good film school experience and I feel like I grew a lot personally, at, at film school, I think I worked really well in, in a school environment. Um, and I think if I had just moved to New York and tried to be like diving into the professional world, I think I would have, I don't think it would have been good for me personally. Like, I, I don't even know if, if, if I, maybe I would have ended up in the same place professionally, but I think just per, as a person, I think I was able to do a lot more growth, like actually going into like a, a, a school with like a lot of other kids who were interested in similar things. And, you know, because growing up in Gunnersville, I was kind of the kid that was interested in film and video and, you know, um, and luckily Val Jones at the high school fostered that within me and allowed me to do projects on film as opposed to like painting or drawing or traditional yeah. um, 2D art. Because um, not only did she recognize that I was a terrible uh, drawer and painter, <laughs> um but she did see that that I was quite interested in telling stories and making little films and stuff like that. So she really fostered that. And then her and um, Cindy Gray at the middle school, they allowed me to teach the middle school um, class for film, like my senior year. So the combination of, of Miss Jones allowing me to kind of dive into that and then further that through teaching when I was a senior. And then, I, you know, ultimately I went to Auburn for a year and I did like a lot of radio television film classes and then I transferred to Florida State's film program. So all those kind of steps, like I just got deeper and deeper into something that I, I had limited exposure to when I was like 16. Right. Um, so I think it definitely took me growing up through film school to like get to a sort of maturity level where I was ready to then go work in New York, uh, just personally and professionally. So from my personal experience, sure, it worked out for me. I think now it's a whole different ball game, right? I mean, that was 12 years ago. Um, now there's way more access to cameras. There's way more access to digital platforms to get your stuff out there. Uh, traditional advertising models are, have been turned on their head. Um, uh, storytelling models. Have, I mean, I was talking to a film school professor recently, and they were saying, you know, we should have taught uh, series writing, not just screenwriting, because now sure, we're yeah. writing. You know, my wife and I just finished watching Ozark, and, you know, that's a – five season arc. I mean, that's 50 hours of, of content. I mean, 
think of your favorite movie growing up. That movie's probably not longer than two and a half hours, probably just two <laughs> hours. Now we, we get, you know, we binge watch through 50 hours of, you know, Ozark, like it's nothing. We want more. We want, we wish right. we, there's going to be a spinoff. So, you know, writing for that, producing for that, all that is very different. So there is definitely not one way to break into the industry. Um, I will say now more than ever, you can do what I do anywhere. It's just a level of project that will differ. Um, if that makes sense. So basically like, I think it's important for anyone thinking about going into film, just a thing you don't have to know, but I think it's important to identify what, what are you ultimately interested in being in? If it's uh, if it's network television where you're going to be working 14 hours a day from Monday through Friday and on Friday you do an overnight. So then you're waking up Saturday morning at 1 PM and you get half of Saturday and Sunday and you go back to work, right? That is a very consistent type of employment and it only really exists in New York, LA and Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a show will shoot in another place, but typically they're crewing up from one of the three bigger places. Um, so that is one career path. Um, and Atlanta is new on that list, right? Atlanta's very, Atlanta's new on that list since about the last 10 years. Yeah. I remember when I was in high school in Gunnersville, I was thinking that I might move back to new Orleans. Um, it was something really that just interested me about doing film in New Orleans and being part of like the Southern film community. And when Katrina hit, it really turned New Orleans on its head and their film industry really fled to Atlanta. So oh, the, I didn't know that. Of, yeah. The roots of Atlanta really are, are uh, a result of two things. It's well, three things, Katrina knocking New Orleans out, which was poised to be the, the South's Hollywood, uh, Two, uh, the states around Georgia not really having their act together in film incentives. Um, Alabama, I'm looking at you. True. Uh, <laughs> there's a reason that they that they shot Forrest Gump in Georgia um, uh. and said it was Alabama. Uh, and and Georgia was was good on that. And then three was the Florida film scene uh, really lost a lot of incentives, and Georgia really doubled down on their film incentives, which is huge because when you have tax incentives your, your money goes a lot longer. So people in Hollywood who are trying to produce something, you know, can I Georgia as a place where their money's going to go further. So right. those three things really created Atlanta. And then Pinewood studios from London came in and said, we're going to build here. And that's what caused it to blow up. And because now they can facilitate projects like Marvel and, you know, sure. Things like that. So the Atlanta scene, um, the Atlanta scene is very deep in that type of production, but they're not super deep in like commercial, uh, uh, like branded things for the advertising industry. There's just not, it's definitely a huge regional market, but it's, you're not going to have as much opportunity in Atlanta for like the stuff that's outside of that, um, like machine, so to speak. So yeah, Atlanta's a great place if you want to go and you want to be a crew member and work your way up and end up like in a union. That's a great place to be. Um, obviously, you can do that in LA and New York as well. Um, Atlanta may be a better fit for a lot of people um, just because it is, you know, the sort of cost of living and the barrier to entry to those cities is a lot easier. Uh, culturally, it's much more similar to like North Alabama. Um, so if you want to do that, you know, if you want to get into... Uh, independent film, then, you know, then the possibilities are kind of endless. You know, you can, if you want to do that, I would suggest living in the cheapest place you can, 
while you while you try to shoot as many films as you can because you're going to be traveling regardless so you don't want to be paying four thousand dollars in rent while you don't live in your apartment learned all these things the hard way but uh <laughs> <laughs> experience so, yes, talking you know and as I've done this now for over a decade and have kind of been pushed and pulled in all the directions that the film industry pushes you, you know, you realize there really is at some point you kind of do get pigeonholed is typically a negative word, but you do get pigeonholed in this industry to working in television or working on films or working in music videos or commercials or working as a documentarian, you know, like there's kind of different ways you go. And so right now I'm quite still, I'm on the, the sort of sifting, shifting sands of, uh, of the industry right now, because I, I kind of jump at, every opportunity I can get. But, um, yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you have experience in, in several of those areas that you could build on if you, if you wanted to, I mean, you, you've got the commercial, you've got the music videos, you've got the documentaries, you've got the, the, the film experience. I mean, you know, just for sure. And, and that is, and so that would be a, a, a sort of, to wrap up that question, like New York afforded me a lot of opportunities. Like, I'll just say that, you know, like there is a TV scene, there is a film scene, there is, you know, a document, documentary scene, there's a commercial scene. Like, there's enough stuff happening in New York to where there is more that's going to fall on your plate if you're kind of trying to break in. Um, but it's not easy. Uh, you know, you have to kind of get lucky. I got lucky and fell in with a production company that where I worked for five years, uh, well, six years, actually. Um, I was I was worked as a cinematographer for a specific company, which is different than how I am now. Cause I'm a freelancer now. Um, and have been for about five years, but that company really, uh, took me under their wing and really facilitated and, and sort of allowed me to grow. So everyone has a different story. Um, yeah. You know, so it, whether you go to school or whether you just start working on set, you know, I think the important thing is that you just, um, have an idea of where you're headed because, you can spin your wheels for a lot of years, just like trying to take whatever comes your way. Um, but in this industry, it's best to kind of, at least after a few years, kind of have an idea like, all right, I'm going to try and be like a career first assistant camera person. So I'm going to move to Atlanta. I'm going to work my way up and then I'm going to have something consistent. Like, you know, yeah. if that, if that's kind of where you want to head, then it's good to identify that. That's good. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, it's it's encouraging, I guess. I hope it's encouraging for people to hear that those paths exist. You know, it, oh, sure. you can make that decision, and you, if you want to move that direction, you can, and that's that's really great. And the, the whole industry is fascinating to me, and I hope it is to other people that are trying to listen <laughs> to this. Um, I think I think those people have clicked off a long time. Ago, not, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's okay. You know, <laughs> I the, my my format for these is that I want to. I'm going to have conversations with with people who who I find interesting and who have interesting things to say. And if you don't want to hear part of it, fast forward. You know, I mean, sure, sure. Yeah. I'm, I, but Adam, I, I've taken up enough of your time. Really, it's it's we've talked for a long time, and I really appreciate uh, everything. I appreciate your time. Appreciate your your willingness to share. Um, and sure. and thank you. Yeah, it's 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 been fascinating to me to just to hear everything about the industry, about your career. And uh, we're we're really proud to uh, to have you as a guest, and uh, hopefully we'll get to talk again soon sometime. Uh, thank you so much for for doing this. You know, keeping the sort of uh, lore and the history of the whole backstage alive, I think, is really important. And I'm not blowing smoke when I say that you know, if, if not for the local theater, um, 
that I was exposed to in Gunnersville, I, I really wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now because um, it really laid the groundwork for me to, you know, be interested in in performances and yeah, stagecraft and lighting and stuff, which you know directly led me to where I am today. So uh, yeah, it's definitely um, something that's near and dear to my heart is uh, you know keeping theater alive, and I think that you guys are doing a beautiful job. Yeah, well, we re- we uh, really appreciate it, man, and and look forward to seeing you know your future projects and and keep us in the loop and uh just excited to see what comes man hopefully i'll see you when i'm in town again yeah man holler at me we get together we may do an in-person like a little short you know this is where we're at now (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) appreciate your time buddy thanks man we'll holler at you later thanks then see ya